Let's pray. God, we praise you this morning. We praise you for who you are, for what you've done for us, and, and what you'll continue to do in our midst. And so as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that you would just speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we'd be able to just open our hearts to what you have for us this morning, and together as a church, grow deeper in our faith. In your powerful name we pray. Amen. So this morning, um, we are on week four of, of six or seven. I don't know how, how many weeks we have of this series, but we're on week four of a series on the BLESS principle. And now I know that some of you have been here for most of the Sundays, some of you haven't been, but I just wanted to refresh your, your memory this morning on what this series is all about. The BLESS principle simply put, is something that we as a, as a church are engaging with over this, this month and next month. And the idea of this is to simplify evangelism. Because we know that evangelism as a term is enough to make a lot of people try to sneak out the back. <laughs> and it's complicated. And uh, Pastor Mike, Martha Keenan, and I have been attending an evangelism cohort, which when I started was kind of scary to me. To, to think about, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm attending kind of a class on evangelism. Am I going to get graded? I don't know how this is going to work. And so we've been engaging this with for well over a year in that cohort, and um, we want to be bring, we're bringing this to you. And now we understand, we've been engaging with this, with the topic of evangelism and outreach and how to do so naturally in our faith for over a year. And it's, it's hard and it's complicated, but we want to simplify it. And so we don't... <laughs> We, we want to simplify this, and so the BLESS principle is meant to do that. It's an acronym, and it stands for um, uh, five different ways, kind of a, a process by which we as a church can engage in sharing the message of Jesus with those that God has placed in our lives. So B stands for be in prayer. We talked about that a couple weeks ago and how we must start with prayer. L is listening with compassion. So with those people that God has placed in our lives, engaging in a listening posture and so this morning, we're on to E, which is eating together. And when Mike asked me to, to join him for the series and pick a Sunday to preach on, I don't know why, but I was naturally drawn to this Sunday, because how often do you get to preach a sermon about food and eating? Not very often, I will say. I think this might be my first. I think it's a dream come true, honestly. I love food. And so... This morning, we're going to be talking about this E of eating together. And when I preach, I also, I like, to, um, I like to let you get to know me a little bit better. And since this sermon relates to eating and food, I figured this would be the perfect opportunity to share my top five favorite foods with a captive audience. So, bear with me. And before we get into it, I, I just want you to know, these are not my top five favorite healthy foods. That's a different list. I do enjoy healthy foods, but they're not in the top five. And so I understand that these are not good for me, and these should not be my regular diet. But they're my favorite, and so that's why I'm sharing them with you. So number five, Raising Cane's Chicken uh, with Texas Toast and Cane Sauce. Has anybody in here been to Raising Cane's before? Oh, man. We need to pray for Raising Cane's to come near to Chaska. So <laughs> I actually heard rumors of that recently, but anyways... Um, <laughs> If you've never been there, they, they serve pretty much one food, and it's chicken fingers. And they serve it very, very well. 
There's four different menu items, and all of them have chicken fingers in them. It's fast service, it's great, and when you pair it with the Texas toast and the special sauce, it's amazing. And I know I'm a youth pastor, and it's a big deal for me to not put Chick-fil-A on my list. I think that fellow youth pastors around the country, if they heard about this, I might get um, kicked out. I, excommunicated, yeah, I might get excommunicated if I, but, so this is a secret, this, this is a safe place for me to share, that I like chicken other than Chick-fil-A more than Chick-fil-A. So, if you've never been there, I'd encourage you to try it. Number four, and this isn't super specific, but just Juicy Lucy Burgers, okay? These are amazing. I, I don't remember when I was first introduced to Juicy Lucy's, but my life has never been the same since. A burger with cheese in the middle, and granted, this food has hurt me the most out of any of the foods on my list because I have burned my mouth more than I'd like to admit, just jumping right in and biting into a, a hot lava of cheese in the middle of a burger. But it's great. I love a Juicy Lucy burger. Number three. This is very specific. This is a, a meat lover's pizza from Bredo Pizza in Hampton, Iowa. And now this is important because this is something you can't get anymore. That pizza place, I used to work there, which is why it's on my list. And, I, and probably it'd be when I made the pizza. So it, but you can't get this anymore because one, I don't work there anymore. And two, the restaurant has closed because their oven broke and those are expensive to replace. So meat lover's pizza from the Bredo Pizza in Hampton, Iowa. It's, it was amazing in the time. Number two. Craft Deluxe Macaroni and Cheese. <laughs> Sharp cheddar flavor. Okay. I like, okay, really I could have put any kind of pasta on my list. I love like any type of pasta. You got your fettuccine, your spaghetti, rigatoni, bow tie. I like, like, you name a pasta, I will eat it. But mac and cheese is my favorite. And specifically the kind of mac and cheese that comes with the cheese sauce pre-made in the package. Mmm, it's so good. <laughs> like I said, not healthy, <laughs> but it's great. <laughs> okay, and then number one. Now, you might be surprised if you know me that that was not number one, because I love mac and cheese, but that's because of a recent addition to my list, and that is number one, mac and cheese pizza. <laughs> the, you, these are... Um, Amazing pizzas. You can get these at many restaurants now, and that's an, it's, a great, it's a great idea. It's a culinary masterpiece. <laughs> Combining the number two and number three favorite food on my list, what else could take number one? Anyways, mac and cheese pizza, you got to try it if you've never tried it. <laughs> Anyways, I could talk about food for a long time. Now, so I tell you about food because after the service this morning and after Sunday school, we're going to have a potluck downstairs so you can find your way down there and now that you're hungry. Anyway, um, if you can't smell the soups cooking in the kitchen. Um, so I know this is kind of silly and, and funny, and, um, but I tell, I, when we talk about food, food is a, a weird thing to talk about because it's something that we all share in common, the need to eat. And it's something that brings us together in strange ways. As you get to know someone, you get to know their food likes and dislikes. And when you eat together with someone, you begin to realize that the dinner table, or the lunch table, or the breakfast table, whatever meal you're eating, the table is a powerful place to get to know someone. And really, it's a powerful place of ministry when we think about it. Because when we eat together, stories are shared. Walls are broken down. That place has more power than we realize. And so we're going to be talking about eating together as an idea. And 
And so as, as we were thinking about this idea of eating together, there's actually a scripture passage that mentions this and places this in a really interesting context. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. And that's Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So I'd encourage you to take out your Bibles and open to this passage. Because in here, we get a glimpse, and we get, we get a glimpse of this idea of eating together. And we get this placed in a very important context for us as a church. And you, you'll hear Acts 2 referenced often when people are talking about kind of the ideal for what a church could be. This was an exciting, an exciting period in church history. Shortly after Jesus had ascended, right after the Holy Spirit had descended, the church had just exploded from a couple hundred to several thousand people. And, so, and it was still all located within the area of Jerusalem. It was a close-knit community. And so we get this picture of a church that is unlike anything that we've seen in church history. There's been periods of revival and periods of, of coming together, but in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, we see something amazing. So I want to just read that for us this morning as we get going. So beginning in verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And, for the, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I love this passage because we see an amazing picture of the church. A picture of the church where people were being added day by day. That's something that we, we can only hope and pray for to have happen. That would be an, that's an amazing testimony to, to what this period of time was. And at the center of it, there's a word that I want to focus on in there. At the center of this, at the beginning, we get the idea of fellowship. The church devoted themselves to fellowship. Now, that word is a word that we've thrown around a lot in the church. We, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a word I feel like that has fallen victim to a lot of words that, that just gets overused and eventually the meaning gets diluted a little bit. And so when we use the word fellowship, we might think of maybe potlucks or we might think of um, just spending time together. We might think of, of some combination of just being around people that are like us, something like that. But when you look at the Greek in, the, in this passage, the word fellowship, that word, um, the original word that was used there is that of koinonia, koinonia. And this word, when you look at it and study it, it's a powerful word. It's used often in the New Testament. And in essence, this word refers to that which is shared in common. It's a simple definition, and, I, and I, we need to expound on it. But basically, fellowship is referencing a shared common relationship. In non-biblical sources, this word was actually used um, often as well. And when it was used there, it was used uh, to reference the dinner table specifically, and sometimes as well, um, the marriage covenant as well. So in, in extra biblical sources, we see that this word is referencing a, a very close setting because in that time, um, we have to realize the importance of the dinner table. Now, for us, 
we maybe don't understand the importance as much. But if you think about it, I've already mentioned this, what's the one thing that everyone on earth shares in common? You have to eat. You have to eat. You have to drink. That is something we, ha we don't have a choice in that, really. We have no choice in the fact that we have to eat. We have to drink at some point if we want to live. Everyone in this room has eaten and drank in order to be here. We don't have a choice in that matter. But what we do have a choice in the matter is, uh, is what we eat. See my favorite foods list and get an idea for what I might work into my daily, not daily, but work into my, <laughs> into my habits. Um, and we have a choice with who we're going to eat with. So who is going to be at our dinner table? We have a choice of the food. We have a choice of the company. We don't have a choice of the fact that we have to eat. And so in the, in the ancient cultures, the dinner table was a very sacred place. And, and the, it was mostly reserved for family. But when you invited someone to join you at the table, it meant that you were willing to welcome them into your family. And so actually, a lot of times, this, when this, was, this word koinonia, or this idea was used, um, in, when it was used in reference to the dinner table, it was also sometimes used in reference to marriage because that was a part of the marriage courting process, inviting the other family to join you at the table. And it's just a fascinating picture of how powerful this word is because it was an intimate setting. And in scripture, we see this word used often as well. Um, this, this, this word, it's a Greek word, so it's not used in the Old Testament. But we get the idea of this sort of fellowship all the way back in Genesis. In the very beginning, God created us to be in fellowship with him. But what happened? When we, as people, decided that we wanted to be independent, free from the fellowship of God, that fellowship with God was lost. That fellowship with God was broken. And not only was the fellowship with God broken, fellowship with one another was broken as well. And so shortly after that, we see the curse of sin. It affects our relationship with God, but it affects our relationship with others as well. And so throughout the Old Testament, you see testimonies and stories of this broken fellowship, where the relationship between God and man is strained, and the relationship between man and man is also strained. The law of Moses was actually, it actually kind of addressed this broken fellowship, because after sin entered the picture, God immediately went to work restoring fellowship. He began redeeming that fellowship that was lost, that, that communion, that intimate setting between man and God and man and one another. And so we see this in the law. We see that um, the people of God were given restrictions. They were given guidelines on how to approach fellowship with God so that they could still have a glimpse of what that looked like. So that they would have, have an idea of what it meant to be in fellowship with God. And then we also have the laws in the Old Testament referring to dietary restrictions. And this was interesting to me. As we think about the dinner table in the context of the Old Testament Israel, there were a lot of restrictions placed on the dinner table for them. And part of that reason is that God in the law with Israel was attempting to set apart his people. That was the purpose, to be holy, to be apart from the, the culture surrounding them so that they could engage in their relationship with God directly. And so you have these dietary restrictions put in place. You have um, cleanliness laws. And these laws actually serve to, in a way, separate Israel from the community so that they would not invite those that were not the people of God into that fellowship. And so 
So what we see with these laws, what we see in the Old Testament, is we see what fellowship could be, but we also see how broken it is because of how restricted it is. And so when we jump ahead to the New Testament, Jesus changes all of this because Jesus and his relationship with God the Father is the perfect example of koinonia, of that fellowship, closeness, sharing in common. So God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit together for all of eternity have existed in perfect fellowship. And so when Jesus came down to earth as a man, he brought that fellowship with him. I found this an interesting way to view God's restoration work, is that of fellowship. Because Jesus came and he initiated fellowship with man personally, and he initiated fellowship between us as well. So, so Jesus brought that to us, initiated it, and when he died and resurrected, that paved the way for us to begin to restore fellowship between us and God and us and one another. So we get this fascinating picture in Scripture of, of just how powerful this word koinonia is. It, it really, at its heart, it, it refers to us engaging in relationships together, sharing, that, sharing in common together. It's a powerful word. I, as I was reading about this word, I came across this quote from uh, Eugene Carpenter. And as kind of, it was from a dictionary describing the, the fellowship and koinonia. And it says this, The unique fellowship between God and Jesus began in eternity, was manifested in time through the incarnation of Jesus, was introduced to the apostles, and then introduced to each and every believer through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We get this amazing picture of our fellowship that we have available to us today together and with God that comes from God himself. It's a part of our design. It's a part of his redemption work. So I, I, I spend this amount of time explaining that word because that is at the core of the Acts 2 church. That word Koinonia. So let's go back to Acts 2 and let's look and see what this church was like. There's a lot going on in this church. It was an exciting time. Um, and so I've, I've got a list of nine things. I know this is a lot, but I, I promise there's a reason. And, and it's just because as we look through this passage, we see all of these things that are happening in the church. First off, as, as I've mentioned, the Acts 2 church was a church of fellowship. It was a church of fellowship. It was a church where they shared time together. They shared meals together. Fellowship was at the center of their community. Time together. The second thing is that it was a church of learning. It says in the passage that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word of God, the words of Jesus Christ were the anchor in this exciting time of the church. They, they, they weren't just making up stuff. They were devoting themselves to God's word that was taught through the apostles. And as we learn about community, and as you, actually, as you, if you've ever been a teacher or, or thought about this idea of teaching, you know that people learn much better together than they do on their own. When you're able to talk to one another, when you're able to engage the ideas together, we learn to better together than we are uh, capable of learning alone. So it was a church of fellowship. It was a church of learning. It was a church of breaking bread. 
It's the third thing. Now, this term breaking bread, it, it, usually in the New Testament, it's referred, it refers to that act of communion. So the, the Lord's Supper, the, um, the taking of the bread and the cup. That's when that, that phrase is used. And so we might get the idea of, oh, well, they just devoted themselves to having uh, the Lord's Supper at their church services. But what we neglect to understand is that for them in the, in the very beginning stages of the church, the act of communion and the Lord's Supper was a part of their meal. So when they ate together, the breaking of bread and, and the taking of the cup was a part of their, their dinner feast. So it was a reminder to them that God's presence was with them even at the dinner table, especially at the dinner table. So they devoted themselves to breaking bread together. It was a church of prayer. That's the next thing. Um, we see that at the end of, of verse 42. They devoted themselves to the prayers. And I, I like how it, this, the ESV translation it has its plural, which is strange because we t- like prayer, prayers, that's strange. And to me, that underscores the importance of the fact that they were praying together, they were praying often, and they were, <laughs> prayer was, was everything. It was a part of their daily habits. It wasn't just a prayer that they said at the beginning of their meal or at the end of their meal or at the beginning of their fellowship or at the end of their fellowship. Prayer was an essential part of, of their habit as a church together. They devoted themselves to it. The next thing I want to point out is that they were a church of reverence. We see this in verse 33, or 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Just that one, that one word, awe. As they devoted themselves to these things, to teaching and learning and prayer and fellowship, and as they saw what God was doing among them, they were moved to awe, to wonder, to a sense of reverence for God. We can't lose sight of that as a community together, that we are called to be in reverence of who God is, because God is above all. Number six is they were a church of action. We see this um, in that they were, uh, they were, there were signs and wonders being done through the apostles, and they were all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were a people that were, were not just content sharing the table together. They were a people that went out, and they did what they saw Jesus do. They weren't content to just leave things as they were. They, they wanted to go and be active in their community, to go and, and with their actions, back up the truth of the gospel. I think that's a powerful, powerful testimony. Number seven, they were a church of worship. In the midst of all of this, uh, we see verse 46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Um, they still attended the temple. They still engaged in worship together in, in, the, in the larger community setting as well as together. Worship was in their DNA. Let's keep moving on. Number eight, they were a church of joy. This is something that I hadn't really caught on to before. But as you continue on in verse 46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
as they saw what God was doing, as they saw their fellowship grow deeper, they couldn't help but be joyful and glad. What would it be like to to see that? A church of joy. That's amazing. And number nine, they were a church of favor in the community. A church of favor. I think it's just, I think it's interesting to see that at the end here. That as they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And then after that we see, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's interesting that at the end of this, they tag on the idea that because of of this community that was established, they had favor in their community. This is an idea that we've actually been learning about in our uh, evangelism cohort, is that as a church, if we're not present in our community, um, it's going to be hard for us to make an impact for the gospel. And I'm not saying that we need to compromise our values or anything like that in order to be a, a likable church. But as the church engaged in fellowship, in teaching, in prayer, in worship, in breaking bread, in serving, in awe, in worship together, as they engaged in all of this, the community couldn't help but be drawn to the church. So as they stood on the foundation of the gospel, as they stood on the foundation of what Jesus instructed them to do, people were drawn in to the church. That is what makes the Acts 2 church such a model, such, such an, an inspiration for us today to look at these things that they were doing and, and wonder how we might fit into that picture as well. And as I look at this passage, I'm, I'm inspired, but I also, I, can, I think I begin to see where some of the problem lies for us today in the modern church. And I'm not saying just specifically our church, but in general for the church when we look at this passage. I think we have a bit of blindness when we look at it and we only catch the last verse. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We look at that and we say, yes, we want that. And that's good. I mean, that's, that's the Great Commission. That's what Jesus instructed us to do is to look at that and say, yes, I want our church to be growing because people are coming to faith. But we forget one through eight. We forget everything that leads up to that happening. So we focus on this result. We focus on the numbers growing. And what happens is that we become much more of a business than we are a church. Even businesses understand that it, if you just focus on the numbers and not the people and not that which causes the people to come in, you're not going to be very successful. And sometimes as a church, we forget that while we want to see people coming to faith, we have to understand that these, these marks, these characteristics of the early church have to be present in our lives and authentic if we want to see people coming to faith like we see here. And so we look at this list, and maybe, maybe you're overwhelmed by all of those things. But there's one thing on, because some of these things are hard, but there's one thing on this list that I don't think is hard and I think is actually quite simple, and that's back to the beginning, it's fellowship, it's koinonia. And now I know that it's still a broad idea, but where, what better tool do we have in the church today, in our lives today, to develop fellowship than the dinner table? The dinner table is a powerful tool that God has given us for ministry. I know that it's difficult to reach out, but all of us eat. All of us have 
a dinner table. And as we look, if, you, if we had time this morning, we would be able to look at Jesus and the way he used the dinner table. He used it in a lot of different ways. He used it with his disciples to, to develop them intentionally and in discipleship. But he also used it to reach out to the sinners, to the tax collectors. He was frequently criticized by the, the Pharisees and by the religious leaders for who he invited to his dinner table. Because he, he was ushering in a new period of fellowship, which by the power of the Holy Spirit, we as the church are able to engage in fellowship with those outside our walls as a church. That's, that's our, our mission as a church. So in the Old Testament, there was restrictions on who you had at the dinner table, but Jesus changed all that and pointed to the fact that the dinner table is a powerful place for us to engage and to share and to invite people in to the community that we have. So I think we need to be open with our tables. I think we need to be open with those that we're inviting here. That's why this is a part of the blessed principle, eating together as we open up our tables, as we engage with those that God has placed in our lives. Powerful things can happen. I think we understand the power of the dinner table. Um, it's a, I think it's even a strength of, of Valley Free here. Um, I was thinking about the table and how I've been blessed by many of your tables <laughs> out there. The first time that I met Pastor Mike and Sandy, we met for lunch. It was out at a restaurant, but we shared around the lunch table. and We got to know one another. Our first Sunday here, uh, when, I was, when we were working on me coming here to work, I guess, um, Megan and Pete invited us over for dinner after the service. I don't know if they remember that, but you did. And that's why we're here today. Um, I, I remember when, when Brittany and I came one day to look for apartments here, Dan and Curry Kep invited us out for dinner. Um, our, our first Sunday here at Valley was the Great Valley Get-Together, um, where, perhaps not coincidentally, Juicy Lucy's were served. Also, a, that's when we knew, you know, this is meant to be. This. Those are just a few examples of the many times that, that that Brittany and I have been able to come over to your homes to, to eat together and to get to know you. And that's how we feel like we're a part of the family here. So what if we took that out? What if we took that to our community? I had some stories I wanted to share this morning, and I, I don't think we have time for it. <laughs> um, but there's, there's two stories that I want to encourage. I'm giving you homework, okay? There's two stories I want you... <laughs> To, to read about, because they're powerful stories of what the dinner table can do. Um, the first is of Sarah Harmeyer. Um, if you want to look up her story, look up Neighbor's Table. The brief summary of her story is that she moved to a new town, and, and she was kind of burnt out on her job. She had just recently quit. Um, and she was trying to re-engage with, with who she was, and she realized that God had blessed her with the gift of hospitality. And so she invited all of her neighbors over to her house for dinner. She bought a big table that sat 20, which turned up to not be enough because the first night she had guests walk down her driveway, she had 91 people from her neighborhood come. Um, so she just took a step, and she just dropped invitations in the mailbox, and people came. People are eager for a community if we just ask. 
So maybe you don't have to invite your whole neighborhood, but maybe just start with a couple neighbors that you can fit around your table, because especially this month, you're not going to have room for 91 people in your backyard. Um, but over the years, she's actually, um, she's been actually able to serve over 3,000 people in her backyard, which is an amazing story. And she started a business out of it, trying to help people do the same. Another story that I, if you, it's actually been shared, I believe, in one of Mike's sermons a while ago, Rosaria Butterfield. She was someone that was diametrically opposed to faith. But one, one day, um, a pastor and his wife invited her over for dinner. And two years later, after many, many times at their table, she turned her life around, devoted her life to following Jesus, and is now a pastor's wife, a speaker, an author. Um, and she wrote a book called The Art, or not The Art of Neighboring. That's a different book. That's also a good book to read. She wrote... The book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, all about the idea of hospitality, radical hospitality, and how it can make a difference and how people can come into contact with the gospel. So Rosaria Butterfield and Sarah Hardmeyer look up their stories and read more. They're amazing testimonies to how just a simple invitation to the dinner table can alter the course of someone's life. So what would it look like if our church was a church that was open at the table, was inviting people in and eating together. What would that look like? We as a church want to be one that is reaching out naturally and organically to those around us, and we cannot ignore the power of the dinner table. So my question to you is who are you going to invite over for dinner this week? Not me, but who are you going to invite over for dinner this week? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the, just the power of, of fellowship together. Thank you for your word and for the example of the early church that as they together engaged in community, in fellowship, in breaking bread together, in worship, in prayer, they saw people coming to faith day by day. We pray that we might just see a shadow of that in our church. That we might see through, through our community, we might see people coming to faith. You have given us each this calling. We know it's hard. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we know that we can take a step out in faith and we can do what you've called us to do. To be open with our fellowship. To be open at the table. Thank you for this challenge from your word this morning. And thank you for this community we have here. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen. On your way rejoicing. And eating. <laughs>